excited today. It's a fun day. We've got our block party, rain or shine, weather be darned, we're going to have a good time. Um, that's right. Uh, we're also, yeah, we're also kicking off a new series. I've got a nice, fresh, new notepad. Yeah, it's crisp. It's the little things, okay? I enjoy this. Um, we're going to be starting uh, in the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at chapter one. Uh, and so I would like to start um, by looking at Hebrews chapter one and reading that through in its entirety. Starting in verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your, e your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for an opportunity like today to come and learn more about you and, and see who you are showing yourself to be through your word, through your revelation, through the great many years of history and the ministry of the prophets and saints, but most especially through the person of your son, Jesus. And we pray that we would diligently learn and read through this book of Hebrews and understand who Jesus is. We pray all of it for his glory so that your name would be lifted high in this place. Amen. Ken Robinson loves to tell the story of a uh, little girl, six years old, who never was really all that attentive in school, and yet one day her teacher discovered she was locked in, she was engaged, she was paying attention, she was trekking along, and it was a drawing lesson, it was an art lesson, and as she was talking about the art and the, you know, everything, she kind of set the kids loose and go ahead, free draw, draw whatever you like, and this little girl, six years old, just starts 
scrub drawing for Isla, and she, she wanders over, and she asks her, so, sweetie, what, what are you drawing? And she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. She goes, wow, that's incredible, but that must be very difficult. I mean, no one knows what God looks like, and the little girl, without missing a beat, goes, well, they will in a minute. God bless kindergartners. <laughs> what I want to look at, not just this morning, but as we examine the entire book of Hebrews, is this question of, do we know what God looks like? And I would contend, as the author of Hebrews does, that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, what his attributes are, what his character is, his great love for mankind, and his mission to redeem us to himself through his son, the promised Messiah, look at Jesus. Look at his life, look at his character, look at his example, look at his teaching, and that is what we do every time we come to this book. And so as we embark on this study of Hebrews and looking at this picture of Jesus and understanding who God is, let's take a quick snapshot of the whole book of Hebrews. And the first thing that I want you to know is that Hebrews is not a traditional epistle. Here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels and Acts, which are uh, by and large historical narrative. They are telling a story in sequential order. There's its events. They went here. They did this. It's people and dates and places and events as it goes along. And then we have a full section of what we call the epistles, 13 of them written by the apostle Paul. And the epistles are letters, but not just letters, but they have a form to them. They have a pattern. They have a format. Maybe in school you remember learning how to write certain things, a persuasive essay, a, a CV, a, a cover letter, a resume. All of these things have a certain format to them, and they go in this sort of order. Well, the epistles do that in that same similar way, and if you read them, they all begin, the first word of each of those epistles is the name of the author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church in Galatia, etc. James, bondservant of our Lord, to the yada, yada, yada. Hebrews doesn't do that. Hebrews is a little bit different, and because it does not start with that, here's who the author is, we don't actually know who the author is. However, it's important to note, Hebrews is not anonymous, it's just unsigned. Here's what I mean by that. The people to whom this, uh, this was written knew the author. They absolutely knew who they were. Uh, there are references made. There are common people in mind. Uh, the so-and-sos greet you and things like that. The author and the audience are familiar with one another. It was not meant to be anonymous. It is just unsigned and unknown to us. There's so much speculation about who wrote the book of Hebrews. I find that less important than understanding the kind of background and purpose and where the author is coming from, whoever he or she is. And I do say that deliberately because we don't know. There's a very good argument to be made that this is someone who was a, uh, a learner, a disciple of Paul, because so much of Hebrews reflects the theology and the writing and the teaching and the themes that we see in Paul's writing in his 13 epistles of the New Testament. 
there's an argument to be made for, uh, is it uh, Barnabas, is it Silas, is it uh, uh, Priscilla or Aquila, uh, is it, you know what, we, we can speculate a whole lot, but we, we are pretty sure it might not be Paul because of when this is written. And so this is happening in the late 60s, before the destruction of the temple, and it's uh, the way that the person writes it in verse 1 is, in these last days. I want to talk about that phrase a little bit, these last days, because they're talking about this, this modern time of persecution after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And a lot of times we hear this phrase of, we're living in the last days, and I agree with that in this same sense, in the sense of these last days where prophecy regarding the Messiah's first coming has been fulfilled and Jesus could return at any time. Two other times in this uh, first chapter, Jesus' return being eminent is, is alluded to, and I believe that. We are still in these last days in that sense that Jesus uh, could come back at any time. There is nothing, no yet unfulfilled prophecy uh, that, that still needs to come to fruition in order for Jesus to come back. For Christ to return, there is nothing that needs to be done. He can come back whenever he wants to, even right now. All right. That's fine. Whatever. All right. We're all joyfully waiting, okay? So it's written in the late 60s in a period of really intense persecution of the church, and it is written to a uh, class of wealthy, educated Jews that are living outside of, of Judea at that time. Okay, we know this for a few different reasons. Their wealth is kind of mentioned a few times. Uh, the, the, uh, their generosity and how much they give and uh, the persecution where their land and other things are being taken away, that's referenced throughout the book. We also know that they're well-educated. They're read uh, very well. The, uh, the Jewish scriptures that are translated into Greek called the Septuagint are quoted a lot, a lot throughout Hebrews. And if as you read through Hebrews, Anytime there's a quotation, you stop and you go, I'm going to go and look that up. That's great. Do that. But it will make the reading of Hebrews three times as long because the author quotes the Old Testament so much because the audience is very familiar with that. What the author is doing is building off of all of these themes that we have been uh, you know, made aware of throughout all of the Old Testament and building off of that. Now, what Hebrews is is a lot like a sermon. Some people have called it that. If you want to think of it as a sermon, that's fine. But Hebrews is a logical and reasoned discourse building to a practical exhortation. I hope sermons are like that, that there is something reasonable, that there is a, 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 a sort of logical flow to things, and it builds to something practical. That's why every time that I preach, I have a so what? What are we supposed to do with that? The author of Hebrews is doing the same thing, where all of these chapters are building up to this practical exhortation, namely, not to abandon their faith. Because in this time of intense persecution, there are a lot of Jewish people that are going, you know what, this Jesus thing isn't worth it. I want to go back to the status quo. I want to go back to the old pre-Jesus uh, um, Judaism and pretend like the Messiah didn't come. And the author is building towards this exhortation not to do that. And these are sprinkled in and around as well. 
This is just one good example, this snapshot in, in, in uh, chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And we see this all over the place in Hebrews. Now, leading up to that, what the author is doing is telling you about who Jesus is and is telling you for ages we were expected, um, we, we, we were told to expect this Messiah who would be like this, and that is who we see in the person of Jesus and why Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship giving all of these reasons and all of these comparisons and talking through all of the Old Testament about why Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And so Hebrews, as we come to it, kind of feels like this comparison, like this uh, persuasive essay to say, here is why following Jesus is better than any other religious system you could think of. And there will be constant sort of comparisons made as we look at this idea of who Jesus is and, and sort of it begs the comparison with other religious thought and belief and systems. And the author opens here in this first couple of verses by talking about this idea of revelation. And I don't mean the, the last book in your Bible. I mean the concept of God showing us who he is. And here now might be the first and most stark distinction between followers of Jesus, Christianity, and any other religious system. And for many, many, many people in the world and the religious systems that they are under and studying, there is this idea that God is far off, that God is unknowable. He is so totally wholly other and so beyond our comprehension that we can never know God. Now, is that true? Kind of. And I, I want to caution you, when things are sort of true, it's those sort of truths, the sort of half-truths that build the foundation for the most convincing lies in our life. So always, always be aware when things are sort of true. I would say, yes, God is unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. God is unknowable, unfathomable, wholly far off and totally other and completely unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. So that begs the question, has God done this? Yes, I believe that he has. The author of Hebrews believes that God has done this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right there in verse 1, teeing up this idea. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And right in these first chapters, talking to a Jewish audience who was well-read in the scriptures, immediately ideas of Moses and Mount Sinai and receiving the, the Torah and revelation would come into their minds because of the language that's used. When he talks about our fathers and the prophets, some of the chief people, like Moses was like 
king to them as the chief example of one of the, the, the religious fathers, fathers of the faith, and also of the prophet, somebody who spoke to the people on behalf of God. Remember when we were studying, studying Haggai, we learned about the, the ministry of the prophets. Moses did that too. And the reason why he is kind of showing you this and wanting, uh, the, you know, the author is wanting the people to have this in mind is because the author is immediately setting up this comparison to be made for any of the ways that God reveals himself to us and Jesus, the absolute best example of who God is. Because if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And immediately he uses, uh, he uses this word, the exact imprint. And an exact imprint is an interesting notion. The same word here, maybe your Bible says representation, the same word is used as like a stamp or a die cut or a seal to be made where we want all of the things to look exactly the same. When you print money or mint coins, you don't want to be able to tell them apart. They need to be exactly the same. And there is something about that. If we want to know what God is like, we should look at Jesus. Why? Because he's an exact imprint. You've seen this before with family connections. Family who looks like one another. When you meet someone and you go, oh yeah, you're clearly so-and-so's brother, father, sister, whatever. I want to show you a picture of my son and my nephew. This is them together. When you meet them, you go, yeah, they are so clearly related. And not just in the way that they look, because you might say, oh man, one is just like a stamp of the other. That's incredible. But in their personalities too, they are very, very similar. They are fun-loving, goofy guys. And it stands for, when you meet them, you go, oh, yeah, they're so clearly related. I'll do you one better. My nephew, his mother, my sister-in-law, is a twin. And the first time that I ever met her twin sister was when I was speaking at a conference, and I knew that Ashley would be there, and it totally slipped my mind that her twin sister would also be there. And as she's coming out of a session that I'm about to go into, uh, I see her and I go, hi, and she kind of looks at me and just walks on, and I was like, what did I do? Why on her? Oh, maybe you've had a similar experience. My wife found out her grandfather was a twin the same day she met said twin. It's like, hey, a little of the heads up would have been nice. Who is this guy? Um, maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've seen someone that you go, oh my gosh, that's just like an exact replica. Even more so with Jesus, even more so when you look at Jesus, you see God because he is an exact imprint of who the Father is. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And, and the comparisons are, are, are still there to the story of Moses and Mount Sinai. When we read this idea, the radiance of the glory of God, what would the audience have been thinking of? Moses going up on the mountain, and when he came down, what was happening to his face? It was glowing because of the radiance of the glory of God. And he's saying, we see that same glow of who God is and his glory when we look at Jesus. Why? Because he is an exact imprint. 
And the next thing that he references and spends most of the chapter talking about is this comparison with angels. And you might think, why angels? Why are we using this as the first comparison that Jesus is better than the angels? It's because in that same story, where Moses is going up onto Mount Sinai, he is hearing from God himself, writing down the Torah, the the instruction, the first five books of the Bible, and giving them to the people directly from God. Jewish tradition holds, and you can read this in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where he meets God and thousands of angels. And they believe that it was the angels who mediated between God and Moses to then give this instruction, this, this Torah, this God's word. And so immediately the people would be thinking about angels. They would hold angels in a very high esteem. And indeed, in first century Judaism, they thought of angels very, very highly. Angels who are this immediate sort of ministers of God. But the author spends considerable time here comparing Jesus and angels. Now, I don't think that the author's intent was to give a full and comprehensive theology of angels, and nor is that my uh, intent this morning to kind of uh, comprehensively cover uh, a, a study and a discourse of angels. But I do want to touch a little bit on what angels are, what we understand angels to be from Scripture and in the way that the author dictates here in the text. And the first thing to know about angels is that angels are servants of God. In fact, if you look at verse 7, it kind of says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It is their job to be messengers. In fact, that's what the word angel means. It comes from the Greek word messenger. It is their duty to be sort of couriers and and messengers on behalf of God, and they do his bidding. They are servants of God. But of Jesus, he says, he's the son of God. Way better, even better than the angels. Which of the angels did he say this about? And then he quotes in verse 5, a very famous and messianic psalm that Jewish people would have been very, very familiar with. This psalm that they used all the time and quoted to encourage one another and and remind one another of the hope that was coming in the promised Messiah. This is quoted at the baptism of Jesus when God's voice says, Behold, this is my beloved Son. It's during the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John see Christ transfigured and then a booming voice from heaven that says, behold, this is my beloved son. It's even uh, quoted in a a very messianic and and Christ-centered sermon that Paul gives in the book of Acts. He quotes Psalm 2. And more than that, The author also quotes the Davidic covenant that we mentioned last week when we were looking at Haggai and Zerubbabel, this idea that God has promised to David that his very son would sit on his throne and reign forever. And that is what the author is saying. Angels are servants, sure, but Jesus is this long-promised Messiah, the Son of God. The second comparison is this, that angels are not meant to be worshipped. We see this all over Scripture. Many times, and 
I'll be honest with you, I think we do a very poor job of, of describing angels in our modern media and cultural depictions of angels. Okay, when you think angels, I want you to not think of your grandmother's precious moments calendar, uh, you know, angels that are really cutesy-wootsy and look like toddlers with wings and, you know, not all that scary unless you're afraid of toddlers and then, sure, maybe, but like, no, angels who all throughout scripture, when people come face to face with an angel, what is their response? Fear, trembling, ah, oh my goodness. And more than once, the angel has to explain to the person who is faced on the ground, you're not supposed to worship me, just so you know. Just one example, in the book of Revelation at the very end, there is this interaction that John, the author, has and the, the person who's having this vision has with an angel. He says, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we see here, angels are not meant to be worshipped. They are ministers, they are servants of God. We're meant to worship God, not them. But what do we say of Jesus? We absolutely worship Jesus. In fact, the angels that we're told not to worship, the angels worship Jesus. Look at verse six. Let all God's angels worship him. Again, the author quoting the book of Psalms to say of this Messiah who was to come that we clearly see all fulfilled in the person of Jesus the angels worship him. That's why Jesus is better than anyone or anything you could ever possibly worship. We're supposed to only worship God? Yes, that's right. Because if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And we're meant to worship Jesus. Third, angels are created beings. Angels are created beings. We get this as we read through much of the prophets, even in the Psalms themselves, we see this notion that they are servants of God created for the specific purpose of carrying out his orders and his ministry. Psalm 148 says, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, and a little bit later talking about these same angels, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. Angels have not always existed. They were created by God for specific purposes. And you know who else created them? When I say God created them, yeah, Jesus is included in that. He is the creator. And this is something that the author goes out of his way to point out. In verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him also he created the world. We see it in verses 8 and 9. God, including Jesus, is the creator of these angels, the created beings. Why is Jesus better to worship even than the angels? The angels are created. Jesus is the one who created them. Fourth, we see angels are directed all over. If we um, flip all the way to the last verse in verse 14, are they not ministering spirits sent out? And we see this all the time in Revelation, in the prophets. Anytime an angel is, is, uh, is mentioned or talked about, 
they are kind of, the angels are not uh, omnipresent in the way that God is. Angels are in one place at a time and sent from place to place to do his bidding. And God sends them out, angels ministering all over the world, all over creation and all over God's kingdom order. Well, you know who, who is the one directing them? It's Jesus. Jesus is seated next to the Father on the throne co-directing these angels together, Father, Son, and Spirit, the whole Godhead, directing and sending out these ministers, these angels. Just as angels are subordinate to God the Father, so they are subordinate to His Son, Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is the point that the author is making. And so as we look at this first chapter, as we look at embarking on this study of the book of Hebrews and looking at Jesus being better than anything else or anyone else we could ever possibly worship, the author is building to a very practical exhortation, and I believe there is tons that we too need to be admonished and exhorted to do or to not do. And so we ask the question, as we always do, so what? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us here and now? The first point that I want to make is this. Cling to Jesus. Whatever else happens, whatever else is going on in your life, whatever other things there might be around that are offering help and and inviting you to worship them, cling to Jesus. My exhortation to you, my admonition to you is the same as the author to his or her audience 2,000 years ago. Don't forsake your faith. Cling to Jesus. And in fact, peppered throughout, because this is a reasoned discourse, not unlike a sermon, we see all of these very practical things. At the end of chapter 1, in the very next verse, we see this word, therefore, There's an old adage in Bible study, anytime you see a therefore, ask yourself, hey, what's that therefore? Have you heard that before? Okay, all right. So anytime you see a therefore, ask, hey, what's it therefore? So it comes right at the end, we've read chapter one, and then we see in in the start of chapter two, therefore, because Jesus is better than the angels, because Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father, because if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Folks, cling to Jesus. Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And I think that there are many times when we are going through things and we try and lean on things that will leave us unsatisfied. We turn away from Jesus in turn to help and to worship things that will always be inferior because Jesus is better. He is better than anything or anyone we could ever possibly worship. And in times of trouble, cling to Jesus. Let me stipulate a brief caveat here, okay? Because what I don't want you to get is this idea that if you get any other help, that's you know, that that's uh, 
a lack of faith or you're turning away from Jesus. I, I am a firm believer that you can love Jesus and have a therapist. It is good, okay? Do that, please. You can have Jesus and have medication. You can worship and love and cling to Jesus and seek out the advice of professionals and other older, wiser people giving you advice in your life. What I am talking about in clinging to Jesus and not doing what the author was so afraid so many of these persecuted Jews living in first century Judea would do is to turn away from Jesus because it gets tough to turn away from Jesus and try and find something else that will satisfy when nothing else will ever satisfy the way Jesus does. Nothing else is the same radiance of the glory of God. Nothing else is the exact imprint of the Father the way that Jesus, the Son of God, is. I will frequently go to a restaurant and ask for a Coke, and then they go, ooh, is Pepsi okay? No! It's not, it's a fraud, it's an imposter, it is not okay. It will never be as good, it will never be the real thing. Did he just compare Jesus to Coke? I might have, I'm sorry. I, you know, sometimes when you feel like, well, this is kind of the same thing, right? Let's just buy the President's Choice brand this time, or whatever. That might work for some things, but sometimes it's like, no, nothing beats the real deal. Jesus is like that. If you think for a minute there will ever be anyone or anything else that can fill you and encourage you and save you the way that Jesus does, you are in for a world of hurt because anything else will leave you dissatisfied. Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And if you want to know what, G what God is like, look at Jesus. The second thing is this, discern truth by the teachings of Jesus found in Scripture. Here's what I mean by that. Frequently, throughout the early days of Christianity, people were pointed in all sorts of directions and they were not always good or helpful or true. And the author here is really trying hard to get people to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus. Stay connected to the teaching and the character of Jesus more than anything else. In fact, there are other times in Scripture when, uh, when people will chastise others. Paul even says this when he's writing to the Galatians. We talked about form uh, earlier in Paul's epistles. Uh, Paul's epistles basically go like this. I'm Paul, this is who it's to, I want to greet you, what are you doing, okay? That's how it goes, this is my summary. And he, in this book of Galatians, when it comes to the what are you doing, he says, listen, I am astonished that you are turning away so quickly from the gospel, and he even mentions an angel. Remember, angels have this place of authority, of reverence within people within the Jewish community, and he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Even if you have a dream and an angel comes to you and says this thing and it is contrary to the gospel of Jesus, ignore it. And we have this same thing sometimes. Okay, we 
we sometimes get into this sense of, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, maybe somebody comes up to you and they say, I just, I have a word from the Lord for you. I have a word from heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. I fully believe God can reveal himself to us any way he chooses to, okay? Here is what I am saying. That word from the Lord that somebody else has, that word that has been revealed to them, that dream, that angel, that whatever it is, will never trump the words of Jesus. And that should always, always be discerned based on the teaching of Jesus. Well, how do we know what Jesus teaches? It's right here, okay? The 66 books of the Old Testament that Christ himself affirmed, he said, this is about me. And the 27 books of the New Testament that Christ himself authorized in his teaching through the apostles, through the disciples, and said, this is my teaching, teach everybody this, that is how we know what the teaching of Jesus is. And anytime we are admonished or given advice or somebody has a word from heaven for us, it should always, always, always be tempered by asking, what does God's word say? And where the two disagree, Jesus is better, okay? Jesus is better than anything or anyone we could ever possibly worship. The third thing that I want to say here is, if we are to look at God if we were to look at Jesus in order to see what God is like, if we ask what is God like and the answer is to look at Jesus, I think there is a real sense of wanting to show others who God is, of our duty, of our mandate, of our great commission to go and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, and teach them all that Jesus commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And when we invite people to experience God, when we invite people to draw closer into intimacy with their Father, God, their Creator, the person who has a purpose for their life, we ought to ask ourselves, what do they see when they look at me? How much do you look like Jesus? If I look like Jesus, and Jesus is God, do others look at me and do they experience who God is? In the way that I act, in the way that I give, in the way that I spend my time, in the way that I parent, in the way that I'm a neighbor, in the way that I'm a son, a wife, a daughter, a, 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 a father, etc., does my life look like Jesus' life? Why? Because if I want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if I want others to know what God is like in my life, I got to make sure I look like Jesus. And as we read through Hebrews, and I encourage you each week to read along and really devote yourself to a study of who Jesus is and why he is better than anything else or anyone else we could ever possibly worship. I want our goal to be, how can I look more like Christ? How can I ask God, by his spirit, to mold me into the image of his son, Christ? So that when people look at me, they see through me and they see God as we invite them into intimacy with their father and creator, God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the work that you have done and are doing in our lives. We thank you 
for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for not being a God who is far off and aloof and unknowable, but God, that you are living and active, that you are engaging in all of your creation and continually drawing us to yourself through your word, through your spirit, and most especially through the person of your son, Jesus. I pray that we would be diligent in studying his life and his teachings and endeavoring to see who he is that we might become more like Christ so that we can invite others into an intimate and loving and saving relationship with you. May it all be for your glory and to lift high the name of Christ in our lives, in our community, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray in his name. Amen.